Great. Well, it's, it's really exciting to be here. I have heard a lot about Antioch Church through my work with World Relief and um, exchanged emails with a, a lot of folks here in the past several months, but it's really exciting to meet some people in real life and to be in this beautiful city. I come from Chicago where, you know, elevation is like a, it's not really a concept. So this is just, I was a geology major in college, so I'm just really, it's good for my soul to be here. Um, I'm going to be talking about kind of a controversial topic today. I hope none of you have fruit with you to throw at me if you disagree with me. Um, but we're going to talk about immigration. And I'll explain why we're talking about immigration and, as we go. But immigration is, is a really complex topic. Uh, it's also, you know, a very hot topic politically right now. But I really want to challenge us to think about this issue, first and foremost, as a biblical issue and as an issue for the church. And then there's some, there's some political things, there's some economic things, there's social issues involved. But first and foremost, as Christians, I want to try to help us to ground our conversation on this issue, which I really think of as a justice issue in, in God's word. So let's talk about this issue of immigration. Everyone agrees that there's an immigration problem. That's the great thing is there's so much agreement. The problem is the agreement stops there because people have different ideas about what the problem is. On one side, you'll have people who will say, well, this is a problem because it's an invasion of illegal aliens who are stealing our jobs, who are causing disease, who are causing crime. I mean, you name it. Any, any social problem you can think of for some people has something to do with illegal immigration. And then on the other side, you'll have people who will say, this is an injustice. This is these poor families being forced into the shadows of our society by arbitrary laws and you know, this is a problem for this reason. And I think a lot of Christians kind of feel themselves in a bit of a tension there because we do know that we're called to obey the law. That's biblical. We also know that we're, you know, we're called to be hospitable and welcoming. That's biblical as well. And then it gets even more tricky because as you learn about this issue, you find out that it's not just an issue that's out there. If you have an idea of the church, which includes a lot of brothers and sisters who are here from other countries, some of them without legal status, this is an issue that starts to hit home as well. Maybe not in one particular local church, but certainly if you look at the church across the United States. So it's a complicated issue. What I want to do this morning is try to rush through a lot of information, and then I'll give you the chance to ask questions, as, as Matt said, um, after, in the next service of the Redux service. But for me, one of the most important things is that we answer some important questions. So there's four questions that I think we need to get to on this issue. The first is, do I know any immigrants? Because it's really easy if we don't know any immigrants to have a lot of strong opinions about this topic without really understanding how it affects people made in God's image. Secondly, do we have, are we thinking about this issue as a Christian? What is it, if we're followers of Christ, how does that change the way that we look at this topic? How, how is the way that I look at it different than if I was someone who didn't claim to follow Christ? And then we need to make sure we get our facts right because there's a lot of misinformation out there. Understand what the situation with immigration actually is. And then, real quickly, well, what do we do with this? How do we respond? So the first question is, do I know any immigrants? Sometimes when I speak, you know, if I have a whole morning, I'll bring someone with me to share their own story. I didn't do that today. Couldn't put someone on an airplane. But I wanted to share the story of my friend Luann with you. Luann and I went to college together, and Luann goes to my church back in the suburbs of Chicago. Luann is from China. She came here when she was three years old. And she's a U.S. citizen, so she doesn't have immigration problems herself. But her family's a little bit complicated. Luann's, uh, Luann came, as I said, when she was three, and her father came with a student visa, studied in the United States, got a master's degree. The whole family came in lawfully, 
And then eventually her dad was able to get a green card through an employer sponsor. And he's a highly skilled worker, so that was possible. And Luann got her green card at the same time, which is how she's now become a citizen. But Luann's mom wasn't so fortunate, because Luann's dad decided just before that green card was finalized that he didn't want to be married anymore. So he filed for divorce, and that divorce was finalized before the green card application. So when the green card came up, Luann's mother was no longer qualified because she wasn't the spouse of a highly skilled worker. So Luann's mom faced a really difficult choice. Under the law, she was supposed to go back to China. But she didn't. She made a difficult choice, an unlawful choice, and stayed on. Even because her daughter was in school by this point, they'd been here several years in lawful status, and there wasn't any option for her to stay here legally. There wasn't any possibility under the law. So she didn't have a social security number, which made it pretty hard to get a job, but she's very entrepreneurial. She started a Chinese restaurant and worked really, really hard. Luann has told me her memories of her childhood were her mom working really, really hard, which is kind of a classic immigrant story. In fact, then Luann's mom got remarried to a guy who had entered the United States illegally from China, who paid $20,000 to be smuggled over on a boat. And they worked really hard, they paid off that debt, they bought a car, they actually bought a house. They bought a house without a mortgage, which I don't know anyone who does that. And they sent Luann off to college in Illinois, which is where I met her. Luann was actually doing kind of a study abroad in South Africa the summer after, I think, her sophomore year, when she got a really tough phone call from her parents. And her mom called and said, the Department of Homeland Security came to our house. They took your stepdad. And they also told me that I have a deportation order. They let me stay because of um, Luann has a younger brother and sister who are 9 and 11. They let her stay temporarily. But Luann's stepdad was taken. He was detained in a detention facility for about nine months. And I would note that cost the US taxpayers about $100 per night um, for him to be detained there. In the meantime, Luann's mom couldn't keep the restaurant going without her husband and take care of her kids. So they had to close their, their business, lay off some US citizen workers. Um, they had been paying their taxes, but with no income, they weren't paying taxes anymore. Luann's younger brother and sister went on food stamps because they're citizens, they were eligible for that. And Luann's stepdad was eventually deported back to China after about nine months. And what's happening now is for nearly two years, Luann's mom has been waiting on an appeal. So they're waiting to find out if there's any way for her to stay in the United States. And I've had to tell Luann as, as her friend, but also as a legal counselor, that I don't think she's got a really strong case. That I'm praying with her that things work out and that I believe God can do miracles, but that she needs to be prepared for the possibility that her mom may be going back, and to think about what's going to happen to her younger brother and her younger sister. That's just a story, the type of things I deal with as I have clients come in and out of my office to ask for legal advice. It's one that's very personal to me because it's a friend and it's a member of my church. But it's important that we think about those stories as we think about the issue. But then we also need to go beyond that. We need to ask, how do I think about this issue of, Christian, as, of immigration as a Christian? How does my faith inform the way that I think about it? In my mind, there's at least three reasons that as Christians we have to care, because it is a biblical issue, it is a church issue, an issue that's affecting the church rather dramatically right now in the United States, and it's a missional issue. So first of all, it's a biblical issue. You know, when I started thinking about this immigration issue, I didn't grow up in an immigrant community. I grew up in Wisconsin, where as far as I knew, there weren't any immigrants. So I never stopped to think about immigration. If I thought about anything, it was from what I heard on TV, what I heard on the radio, what I got in some email forwarded to me. And I certainly never thought about it as a biblical issue. But as I started to interact with immigrants through my work and just in the place where I live, 
I started thinking about, you know, I started reading the Bible through something of a new lens. And I realized that there's, the characters in the Old Testament in particular are crossing borders all over. These were immigrants, migrants. Um, someone like Abraham, who was called by God to another country um, on this promise. Someone like Joseph, whom today we might think of as a victim of human trafficking, an involuntary migrant who was forced to migrate unjustly. Someone like Ruth, who migrated to be with family. Uh, and then into the New Testament, even Jesus himself was an immigrant probably on two counts. In one sense, as a celestial immigrant. He, you know, we, most immigration is for upward mobility. People want a better job. Jesus went the downwardly mobile route. He left the glories of heaven and dwelt among us on earth and walked as a human being. And then in, a, in perhaps a more practical sense, he was a refugee who, when he was two years old, we read in the Gospel of Matthew about Mary and Joseph picking up their two-year-old son Jesus and running off to Egypt because there was a genocide happening under King Herod. And that's something that, you know, I do a Bible study with Burundian kids in my neighborhood, and they love that story. It's the part of the Christmas story they like best because they know what it's like to have to pick up and leave, and they love that Jesus went to Africa. So that's, you know, that resonates with them. And it's neat for me that my immigrant brothers and sisters can see how Jesus identifies with them in that. So there's a lot of immigrants in Scripture. And then God has a lot to say about the topic of immigration as well. In fact, the Hebrew word ger, which is the word for an immigrant, someone who's left one country to go and dwell in another, appears 92 times just in the Old Testament. And very often it's in the context of saying, you know, here's the rules. And by the way, these rules, they apply to you, the native-born Israelites, and to the alien living in your land. You get the same rights and the same responsibilities. And then as you go further, and another concept you find very often is that God calls his people to remember their own history. So he tells the Israelites repeatedly, and don't forget, you know what it's like to be aliens in a foreign land. You were foreigners in Egypt. Leviticus 19, I think it's up on the screen. When an alien lives with you in your land, do not mistreat him. The alien living with you must, among you must be treated as one of your native-born. Love him as yourself, for you were aliens in Egypt. And I am the Lord your God. There's this idea that we need to remember our history. And a lot of us, and as American Christians, probably all of us have some sort of an immigrant history, whether that was 400 years ago on the Mayflower or on a slave, a slave boat or last week across the desert somewhere. We have an immigrant history. But we forget it so quickly. Or the things that we remember are kind of the meaningless things of, oh yeah, we eat this food at Christmas. But we forget the, the trials that our ancestors went through. And that's exactly what God calls us to remember. And then another common theme in the Old Testament is you're gonna, you find that God cares about the vulnerable. And he actually identifies a few groups of people in that society, and I would argue in our society today as well, who are particularly vulnerable. The, he mentions repeatedly together the alien, the orphan, and the widow. A handful of times in the Old Testament you find this. For example, Psalm 146.9, the Lord watches over the alien and sustains the fatherless and the widow. Malachi 3.5, God talks about judgment, something that gets a little bit uncomfortable to talk about, but he says, I will be quick to testify against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive aliens of justice. And then it's also, you'll find that God doesn't just tell you you know, you need to care for these people. For the Israelites, he gave them some specific guidelines for how to do that. In Deuteronomy, we find this concept of what theologians are called the gleaning rules, which basically God says, when you're picking your wheat and you're picking your grapes and you're picking your olives, go over everything one time and then leave what remains for the alien, the orphan, and the widow. It's kind of God's plan to make sure that these people were provided for. Because 
In an agrarian society where you inherited your land, those people may not have an inheritance because for the alien who comes in from outside, they were going to be vulnerable, and God wanted to make sure that their needs were provided for. Then as you move into the New Testament, you'll find that there's, um, there's less explicitly about immigrants, but you have this idea of loving your neighbor. So probably most of you are familiar with the passage in Luke where a lawyer comes to Jesus and says, well, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind, and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I have a legal background, so when I read that, my reaction is exactly the same as the lawyer in the scriptures, which is to say, well, let's put a formal definition on neighbor. Because if neighbor is the person who lives one door down, or maybe two doors down on either side, that may actually be challenging enough in itself. But what does neighbor mean? And so Jesus gives us, you know, unfortunately for me perhaps, Jesus gives us a very broad definition. He tells a story that we know of as the parable of the Good Samaritan. This, this guy who's going down the road to Jericho, gets beat up on the side of the road, and a Samaritan comes along after a few religious officials walk by and do nothing. A Samaritan, who in that context was someone from a different ethnicity, a different religious group, someone who Israelites didn't really get along with very well, the Samaritan comes along, sees this guy, sees that he's in need, and helps him out. He puts him on his donkey, brings him to an inn, and Jesus asks the, the legal scholar, he says, so who's the neighbor in this story? And, and of course the guy says, well, the one who had pity. And Jesus says, well, go and do likewise. And I think it's important to note that we don't know a whole lot about the guy beat up on the side of the road. We don't know what his legal status was. We don't know, you know, if he'd kind of done something where he deserved to get beat up. If, he shouldn't have really been in that, in that neighborhood anyway. We don't know any of those things. All we know is that he's in need and that Christ's call is to love him. Now, in the New Testament, we also have the idea of Romans 13, um, which some of you are familiar with. Romans 13 is the passage. Um, I'm sorry, I skipped it. Um, let me go back here on the slide. We also have the idea of hospitality, which is really strong in the New Testament. It's Matthew 25, where we took the title from, for our book, you know, this relatively well-known passage where Jesus says, you know, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. So we're, and, you know, theologians will argue whether that passage applies just to those within the church or to those with outside of the church as well. But there's plenty of immigrants within the church, so I think that there's plenty of ways to apply this passage, um, even if you want to have a narrow definition of how to understand that. We're called to that hospitality. We're also told in Hebrews 13 that we should entertain angels. I mean, we should entertain strangers because you don't know if you might be entertaining angels. There's this great idea that maybe, maybe immigrants aren't something to be afraid of. Maybe strangers shouldn't be feared, but maybe they bring a blessing. Maybe that immigrants have something to bring to our society. But then also in the New Testament, you have this idea, um, as we move ahead here, um, that we're supposed to submit to the law. And I know for a lot of Christians, that's where the conversation starts and where it ends. It says in Romans 13 that we are called to submit to the governing authorities because the authorities that exist have been established by God. And we have to take that really seriously. We can't just say, well, that doesn't fit really my politics very well, that doesn't fit what I want to do on this. We have to really wrestle with that. But I think it's also important that we read it in context. Um, first of all, we need to think about how this applies to, on different levels. Personally, I don't worry too much about Romans 13 because I don't do anything that's unlawful in my work with immigrants as, as I'm giving legal advice with the proper accreditation, as I'm you know, helping some of the kids in my neighborhood with their homework, even if they don't have legal status. If I'm sharing the gospel, if I'm advocating for changes to law, at least in the state of Illinois, and I think in the state of Oregon, all those activities are lawful. So on, a, on one level, I don't worry too much about it. 
But I know a lot of my brothers and sisters, especially in immigrant churches, who've really struggled with this because they are here unlawfully. And they get to this passage in Romans and it says, submit to the government. And they really want to do so. But under current law, the only way for them to do so would mean separating, would be going back to their country. And then they have to face the decision, do they bring their kids back with them? Or do they stay here with somebody else? Do they, and can they provide for their family where they came from? A lot of people have told me, you know, 1 Timothy 5 says that if I fail to provide for my immediate family, I have denied the faith and am worse than an unbeliever. So, you know, at the end of the day, I might rather, you know, be here unlawfully but provide for my family and be right before the Lord and deal with the sword of the government that we read about in Romans 13 than the other way around. For me, though, it's, you know, this idea in Romans 13 that we're called to obey the rule of law makes me desperate for a law that doesn't put people in that situation. I wish, and I know many pastors in immigrant churches are very strong advocates of some sort of changes to immigration law because they'll say, I want to be able to tell people, go fix this, go make things right, go to the government, be reconciled, you know, do what you need to do. But that's not possible under the current law. So this is a biblical issue. But it's also an issue that's having some dramatic effects on the church. And, you know, Sometimes we think of the church as, you know, the people who meet here, and that's, this is the church. But biblically, we're told that there is one church, which means that the church meeting this morning all across this country and really all across the world is one body. That Ephesians 4 tells us there is one body, that there's one God and Father of all who is in all and through all and over all. And that has some theological ramifications for us because it turns out there's a lot of immigrants in the church. In fact, there's a study out of Gordon-Conwell Seminary um, that suggests that immigrants are by far the fastest growing segment of evangelical churches in the United States. That means that whether you see it sitting next to you or not, you've got some brothers and sisters who are immigrants. And some of them, I have to, have to break it to you, are not here lawfully. It tells us in 1 Corinthians 12 that there is one body with many members. So it says that the hand can't save the foot, I don't need you. And what that means is that the, the mostly white church can't say to the mostly Latino church, I don't need you, and vice versa. And the African-American church can't say to the Asian church, I don't need you. Now, sometimes we don't know that in our churches in the United States today because we don't have many relationships. You know, it's still true what Martin Luther King Jr. said 50 years ago, that 11 a.m. on a Sunday morning is one of the most segregated hours of the week. So even in a very diverse place like where I live in the suburbs of Chicago, a lot of white Christians don't know a Mexican Christian. But that doesn't undo the biblical fact that we're part of one body, and that 1 Corinthians 12, 26 says, if one part suffers, every part suffers. Um, then finally, this is a missional issue. And that's, I think, one of the most exciting parts of this, this conversation on immigration. We're told in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples of all nations. Um, and that's something that evangelical churches have done you know, in history by sending missionaries all over the world. And I think that's really important. But we also have an opportunity in 2010 in that the nations just show up right at our doorstep. Um, the nations of the world come to the United States. And that presents a mission on our doorstep, a huge missional opportunity. And I also don't think that's an accident. I think that's part of God's sovereignty. And it says in Acts 17 that from one man, God made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live, God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. So it's not an accident that people are here. It's part of God's divine plan to save the world. 
But it's also not a foregone conclusion because unfortunately, most churches in the United States, and there's some wonderful exceptions, but most churches in the United States aren't doing a really great job at this. Um, there's been research out of the Billy Graham Center uh, that suggests that less than one in 10 immigrants is welcomed when they arrive in the United States by any American, to say nothing of a Christian. And that's a huge opportunity lost because missiologists will tell you that immigrants are among the most receptive groups of people to the gospel of anyone you could find, not just in the United States, but in any context. So, and then our attitude has a big part to, a big role to play in how, we res how immigrants hear the gospel as well. Because if, you know, an immigrant wanders into church and I'm over at the coffee pot complaining to my friend about those dirty illegal aliens who are stealing my jobs and causing disease and how I just wish they'd go home, well, they're probably not going to go home, you know, to Mexico or to Guatemala, but they're probably not going to come back to church either. And that's an opportunity lost. So I think it's really important as Christians that we think about this biblically, that we think about it ecclesiologically as an issue of the church, that we think about it missionally. But then we also need to make sure that we get our facts right, because there's so much misinformation on this issue. Um, and I had a lot of that misinformation as I started to work with immigrants myself, because again, I didn't have the relationships to help me understand this, but I've learned a lot in the last several years. First of all, as we talk about immigrants, it's important to realize that most immigrants in this country are here lawfully. Um, the majority are either naturalized citizens or uh, lawful permanent residents, people with what we call a green card. That's about 37 million immigrants in total. But there is a, about a third of that group are here unlawfully. And that's where all the controversy goes. That's usually where a lot of the misinformation goes as well. So I want to tell you a little bit about who these people are, kind of talk about some of the major misconceptions around these people. So um, the, the first Let's just talk about who these people are. There's, according to the, to the government statistics, and nobody has a great way to measure exactly how many people there are here unlawfully, because they're not the quickest people to answer a survey. Um, <laughs> but the government thinks there's probably about 10.8 million people living unlawfully, illegally, undocumented in the United States. Um, and if you have a, you know, a stereotype of who those people are, you probably tend to think, oh, it's all 11 million people who entered illegally from Mexico. Well, there's a lot of people who entered illegally from Mexico. That's a majority of the unlawful population, the unauthorized population is from Mexico. But there's a, that's about 55 to 60%. That leaves a lot of people who are from some other countries and a lot of people who entered in some different ways. Let me skip ahead to the next slide there. I think it, um, oh yeah, I'm sorry. I'm gonna keep talking about this and I'll get back to this. Um, there's about, actually, if we just skip to the next slide, there's, there's between 40 and 50% of the people here unlawfully entered on a, a valid visa, entered lawfully, like Luann's mom, and they overstayed. So there's border security issues that we have to address. Well, if we just address the southern border, we're not going to address half the problem, because there's a lot of people who are entering lawfully and overstaying. And then they're not all from Mexico. So one in five Korean immigrants is here without legal status. One in six Filipino immigrants. One in eight Asian Indian immigrants. So this is an issue that affects nearly every immigrant community. I've done some work in Washington, and on you know, advocacy issues, and you'll, you'll, whenever immigration reform is being discussed, there's this group of undocumented Irish immigrants, and they all wear green, and it says, legalize the Irish. They're very, you know, they get a lot of attention. But people don't think about that, but they're here as well. Um, so this is an issue that is affecting nearly every immigrant community. Then there's a lot of misconceptions that we need to, to think about. So we can move on to the next slide here. Um, one of the questions I get a lot, well, why don't people just come, you know, people should just come the legal way the way that my ancestors did. 
And I definitely resonate with that sentiment. You know, my ancestors came here um, from Holland, so I'm Dutch. We're very proud of the Dutch. If you ain't Dutch, you ain't much. I grew up with this idea. <laughs> I try not to say that too much because it's actually kind of racist. Um, but this was what I grew up with. But I know that I've got this immigrant history, and it's something that's you know we're kind of proud of in my family. And I know that my ancestors came here legally. So why can't people come here legally today? That's a reasonable concern. Basically, the answer is because immigrants haven't changed that much, contrary to some of what people you know, show on TV. But immigration policies have changed a lot. People tend to have this romantic ideal that, oh, when my ancestors came, they just pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and worked hard and learned English the day off the boat. They got off the boat. But the reality is immigrants have always been welcomed by some and really, really disliked by others. So, for example, this quote is from Benjamin Franklin. Um, but if I didn't tell you that, you could probably think it was a politician you know, before the elections last week. It says, why should immigrants establish their language and manners to the exclusion of ours? Why should Pennsylvania, founded by the English, become a colony of aliens who will shortly be so numerous as to change us instead of our anglifying them and will never adopt our language or customs any more than they can acquire our complexion? Now, mind you, I cannot tell you the difference in complexion between a German person and a British person. I think that's kind of an interesting issue. But for Mr. Franklin, that was a chasm. There was just never going to be a bridge between the German and the, and the British just because of the color of their skin. You couldn't get over that. Um, but it speaks to how much this issue has always been an issue in the United States. That said, even though you had people who were concerned about new immigrants coming, concerned about their ability to assimilate, our policies in the United States were actually very open um, until the late 1800s. So, you know, in 1882 is when we first started closing off immigration in the United States, and that was with the Chinese Exclusion Act. Um, that was basically because we had a lot of Chinese workers coming mostly to the West Coast here in Oregon, California, and they were really welcome. In fact, they were recruited when we needed their labor to build a railroad to, you know, with the gold rush in California. But then, um, there wasn't as much work. This might sound familiar to some of our contemporary situation. There wasn't as much work, and people decided that they had to go. They weren't welcome anymore. So the, you know, there was local laws that, that sprouted up, and then eventually at the federal level, the Congress did a study and determined that the Chinese did not have sufficient brain capacity for democracy. And on that justification, they decided they would exclude all Chinese. So in 1882, we, started, we created the first illegal immigration by putting the first restrictions on who could come. And that is to say that the reason that my ancestors came here legally from Holland was not necessarily because of their moral superiority, but because they couldn't have figured out an illegal way to come. There was no illegal immigration because there was an open policy. I'm not saying we should go back to that, but it's important that we realize that that was the reality. Beginning in 1882, we started to restrict things, and things got more and more restrictive with different groups of people. We said, no, we don't want you, we don't want you. Until in 1924, we passed something called the National Origins Act, which basically said, from here on out, we're going to have very limited immigration, and it's going to be from the countries we prefer, which are the countries that made this country great 40, 50, 100 years ago, the Western and Northern European countries. Your immigration from other countries is going to be very, very tightly limited. And that was our policy until about the 1960s, when in the midst of the Civil Rights Movement, President Kennedy felt like, you know, we're doing the Civil Rights Movement, we're talking about race and ethnicity, doesn't really make sense to have an immigration policy which is so explicitly tied to race and to nationality. So he made some proposed changes, and they were actually signed into law under President Johnson in 1965. That's the background for the immigration legal system that we have today. So with that, it goes into 
you know, this question, well, why don't immigrants just come the legal way? Um, basically, there's four ways that immigrants could come the legal way. They could be through a family sponsor, through an employer sponsor, by winning something called the diversity lottery, or by getting refugee or asylum status. So I want to just explain real quickly, this is your, you never thought in church you'd have a class on immigration law, but real quickly how these systems work, because it's important to understand how the current system works. First is family. There's about 226,000 visas available per year for family-based immigration. And that is basically, if I'm a US citizen and my wife is overseas, I can petition for her. It will cost some money, it might take some time, like six months to a year, but it should be possible in most cases. Works fairly well, although it's a, it's a complicated process. Where it doesn't work as well as some of the other relationships. So if I have my green card, I'm here lawfully, and I file a petition for my wife or for my you know, underage kids, it could take a lot longer for them to get here. I work with a pastor near me who came from El Salvador, came lawfully with his green card. He filed for his wife and kids as soon as he got here, but it took them five years to get here. And it's a long time to be separated from your wife and kids. He could go back to visit them in El Salvador when his church would give him vacation time, but his wife and kids couldn't get a tourist visa to come and visit him here. So then the, the worst case scenario is for siblings of US citizens from the Philippines. They're waiting on, on backlogs that are about 20 to 22 years long right now. So it's a really long time. That's the family system. Then you have the employment-based system. In the employment-based system, you've got about 140,000 visas, permanent visas available per year, for, mostly for highly skilled workers. So if you've got your master's degree, you have a PhD, you're gonna be an IT worker, it's a bureaucratic, you know, some hoops to go through, and it might take some time, but you could probably get a visa if you can get a job, someone who wants to hire you here. But where, this pro pro where the problem is in this system is at the lower skill level. So there's a lot of jobs in this country that don't actually require a master's degree. In fact, they don't even really require a high school degree. I work in the agricultural field, in a lot of service industries, and a lot of Americans really don't want to do these jobs. So a lot of companies will look for immigrants to do them, but there's only 10,000 visas available per year for low-skilled workers, and 5,000 of those 10,000 compete with highly skilled workers. So in practice, you have 5,000, and the wait times for those visas just extend into infinity. So that creates a problem because there's a no trespassing sign at the border next to a help wanted sign. And it's a little bit of, you know, it doesn't always make sense. The other way you might come is through something called the diversity lottery. Um, this is a lottery, you apply online and you can, um, the odds of winning last year were about one in 272. So probably better odds than one of those scratch off games where you think you're gonna win a million dollars. But still not very good odds. If you entered every year of your life, you'd probably never win. And this diversity lottery only is for certain countries. So it's not for Mexico, it's not for Poland, it's not for the Philippines, it's not for China, not for India. Any of the countries where you might think, well, that's where a lot of immigrants come from, probably they don't have the diversity lottery. And finally, there's what's called refugee or asylum status. Refugees are people, they're, they're a version of immigrants, but they're people who have fled persecution, specifically on account of their race, their religion, their national origin, their membership in a particular social group, or their political opinion. And some of them, about 80,000 a year, are selected to enter the United States, um, and they have lawful status. World Relief works with a lot of these folks. Um, the trick with refugee status, a few things. First of all, it's important to recognize that just because you're fleeing persecution doesn't mean you get to come to the United States, because only about less than one half of 1% of the world's refugees get resettled to any developed country in a given year. And then, you have to be fleeing persecution for one of those reasons. So after the earthquake occurred in Haiti last year, you had a, you know, I read newspaper reports about the refugees coming from Haiti. Well, technically those people were not refugees because they were fleeing a natural disaster, not fleeing persecution. 
there's a lot of people who are fleeing poverty, but they're not refugees under the law. All of that to say, there are a lot of people in our society who don't fit into any of the boxes. One of my neighbors where I live is from Mexico. She came here about 20 years ago. She came to work, but she works at a fast food restaurant. She, did, she wasn't qualified for a highly skilled worker visa. She came to the suburbs of Chicago because that's where her family was, but her family was cousins, and cousins can't su submit a petition for you. She didn't have the right relationship. Mexico doesn't have a diversity lottery, and she was fleeing poverty, but she wasn't fleeing persecution. So for someone like her, we can tell her to wait her turn in line, but there's no line to stand in under the current system. Jump ahead here. Um, skip the next one here. Then I, I want to address some of, the, some of the misconceptions that there are. One of the major misconceptions is, well, those people don't pay taxes. Um, it's true that some immigrants don't pay taxes. Also, uh, some US citizens don't pay taxes. But the, the fact is that the majority of undocumented immigrants are paying payroll taxes and social security taxes. And that's about three out of four, according to the Social Security Administration. The way that works, basically, is people get a, something that looks like a social security card, and they present it to their employer. And I don't know if you've noticed on your social security card, but it looks like it was made with blue construction paper and a typewriter. It's not the most secure document we could probably come up with. But in my mind, that's not coincidental, because we need people in our economy. So we've kind of created a, a wink and nod system, where people get a fake card. We don't really enforce the fact that that's against the law. They start working. Their employer takes payroll taxes out of their check sends it to the federal government. The federal government in 2007 took in $12 billion in payroll taxes, social security taxes, where the name on the card didn't match the number, which that could be any number of reasons. But the vast majority of it is from immigrants without legal status. But if those immigrants think when they turn 65 years old that they're going to go get social security benefits, well, they're going to be really disappointed because they're not eligible for those benefits. So in effect, we have some of the poorest people in our society subsidizing my grandparents who have worked hard and paid into the system, but they're not going to be eligible for any of those benefits. Not only that, but immigrants can also file taxes with something called an individual taxpayer identification number. And that number was created by the Internal Revenue Service for people who don't have a social security number, but who they want to be paying taxes. So they've been very clear that they will not be communicating with that other part of the federal government that does immigration enforcement. And most immigrants kind of take their word for it and are filing their taxes. Then another misconception we have is, well, these people, they come here and they're a drain on our welfare system. They come here so they can, you know, it's a little bit inconsistent because you'll hear that they're stealing your jobs, but they're also sitting around on, you know, on their couches collecting welfare checks, doing nothing. Um, that's not accurate, mostly because you're not eligible for any sort of welfare benefits if you don't have legal status. You're not eligible for food stamps. Um, in fact, even lawful immigrants who come with a green card are not eligible for those benefits for the first five years that they're here. Um, it is true that U.S. citizen kids, regardless of the parents' legal status, can get some of those benefits. And that does result in some costs to society. Um, but immigrants don't come here to, have, you know, to wait till they have kids and let them milk a system. In fact, most immigrant children of immigrants who are citizens are actually really hesitant to apply for any, any sort of public benefit because they're afraid to talk to the government. Um, and then the, other the, the only two expenses that you know, benefits that there are are education for kindergarten through 12th grade because of a Supreme Court decision. And in the case of an emergency, if you go to the hospital, uh, regardless of your legal status, you should be treated. And that does result in some serious costs. But um, that also speaks to the fact that there are costs to immigration, and particularly to illegal immigration. But we don't do well if we look at that in the vacuum. 
One of the other ideas that we have is, well, immigrants are just a, a drain on our economy. Can we sustain this? There are costs to immigration, but the benefits economically, to say nothing of the cultural benefits of diversity or the benefits to the church, are actually greater than the, the costs. So the Wall Street Journal did a survey and found that 44 out of 46 economists think that illegal immigration is good for the U.S. economy. That's a pretty well-established doctrine in the field of economics. Um, the Cato Institute, which is kind of a more right-leaning group in Washington, did a study that found that over the course of a lifetime, the average immigrant will pay in $80,000 more in taxes than they take out in any sort of benefit. The trick with that is they pay in a lot more at the federal level, that $12 billion going in, than they take out, but they actually take out more at the local and state level than they're paying in. And that's why you have a lot of local and state governments that are really upset about this, and they want to pass laws like they have in Arizona. But the federal government doesn't have as much incentive to do anything, because they're actually really benefiting from the system. So another one of the misconceptions that we have as we move forward is that immigrants don't share our values. They don't have American values. Well, with that, I guess we have to ask what American values are. If it's what we see on a sitcom on television, I'm not sure that as Christians we want to affirm all of those American values. But the reality is immigrants actually have really strong family values, um, probably stronger than, than a lot of North Americans. And as Christians, I think it's something we could be, you know, that we can embrace. Um, immigrants, Hispanic immigrants specifically, are more likely than native-born U.S. citizens to go to church on a given Sunday. They're more likely to be married. They're less likely to be divorced. They're more likely to be pro-life. They also tend to have a very strong work ethic. Um, undocumented immigrants in particular, undocumented males, as of a few years ago, had a 96% labor participation rate, which means they're almost all working. That's why they came here. That's a higher rate than U.S. citizens. It's a higher rate than legal immigrants. And immigrants are also significantly less likely to commit crimes than native-born U.S. citizens, which is actually a surprise to a lot of people because whenever an immigrant does commit a crime, that's the headline, right? Illegal alien kills someone. Some immigrants commit crimes, but they do it less often than U.S. citizens do. Now, this is where assimilation comes in because two or three generations down the road, children of immigrants look pretty much the same as other U.S. citizens. So whether that's a good assimilation, I don't know. Um, but Immigrants themselves are much less likely to commit crimes. And then that leads us um, to the last, last set question here, which is, um, how can we respond? Really quickly, I want to suggest a few ideas. We use this acronym at World Relief. Prayer, listening, education, advocacy, service, and evangelism. So prayer, I hope, is obvious and also, in some ways, the easiest. We're called to pray without ceasing. And to pray specifically, I would challenge you to pray for the immigrants in your community, the people who are doing agricultural work, you know, a few miles out from here, uh, to pray for the churches of this country as we think about how do we wrestle with this, and to pray for our legislators. We're told in the scriptures to pray for kings and all those in authority. Um, they need courage, and they need wisdom. Then we need to listen. Um, we need to listen to God's word, listen to what the Bible has to say about this, and we also need to listen to the stories of the immigrants in the church in our country. Education is kind of what we're doing right now. We need to understand the facts. But then as one person understands it, we need to help educate others. And the church has a key role in that because most people in most churches in this country are learning about immigration exclusively from the television and from emails. And it turns out not everything you read in an email forwarded to you by someone is totally correct. <laughs> then advocacy is also really important. And advocacy, you know, I, it, um, I like to use this... Martin Luther King Jr. T said once, you know, a long time ago, he said, if you love your neighbor, you need to help out the guy who's beat up on the side of the road to Jericho. 
That's loving your neighbor. But if the next day someone else is beat up on the side of that road, and the next day someone else is beat up on the side of that road, and the next day someone else is, we need to ask ourselves, what's wrong with this road? And that's what advocacy is. It's changing the structures when those structures are not just, when they're not functional, when they're not compassionate. And that's as easy as picking up a telephone and calling your congressperson um, and organizing your friends to do the same. And then service. There's a lot of needs in the immigrant community. There's a lot of immigrants who are doing very well, who are very well off, but a lot of others are among the poorest people in our society. And they're also some of the most isolated. So there's needs for English classes, there's needs for um, just friendship. Being a friend is one of the best things you can do. And that's something we do at World Relief, and you know, we have about 20 offices around the country. I wish we had an office here in Bend. We don't, but I just came back from Seattle and was seeing some of our programs in Seattle. But you don't need a World Relief office for church to reach out and do this. And then the last piece is evangelism. You know, we're, we have this great blessing and opportunity of sharing the good news that we found in Christ. And we do that in the context of relationship, and of, as we're serving, as we're advocating, to also verbally share the hope that is in Jesus. Then real quickly, that's how we could respond as individuals. What could the government do? Um, and I go to this just because it always comes up. Well, what should the government do? What should we be advocating? I won't tell you what you should advocate. I'll tell you what I advocate, um, which is what World Relief and the National Association of Evangelicals say, which is we should do some sort of a comprehensive immigration reform. We are not for amnesty. Um, we're not for open borders. But we also are not for deporting everyone. We think there needs to be a middle ground somewhere in there. Um, we think it should be harder to enter this country unlawfully. We're all for border security. It should be harder to work in this country unlawfully. But that also only works if you make it easier to enter and easier to work when there's a job. Not without limit, but a number of visas, somewhere higher than 5,000 a year for low-skilled workers, that meets the needs of the U.S. economy. And then with the people already here, we think there needs to be a way to require people to come forward, to have them pay a fine because they did break the law and we can't condone breaking the law, but have it be a fine that fits, you know, fits the crime, which we think would be a monetary fine and not necessarily deporting everyone, unless they've been serious criminals. And then you can allow them to earn the right to stay here lawfully and eventually to be on a pathway to citizenship. That's kind of the policies that we've supported and we think it's a good middle ground between compassion and justice. And so that's, that's basically what I have to share with you. I'll take some questions when we, when we come back in the Redux service, but if you can join me in prayer, it'd be great. Father God, we thank you that you have welcomed us into your family, that you have naturalized us into your kingdom by your grace. God, I pray that as your church and as individuals and as a society, we would extend that same hospitality and that we would um, share your love with the people that you bring to our country. I thank you for this church, God, and for the ways that you are using it in seeking your justice and seeking your kingdom. And I pray all this in the great name of Jesus. Amen.